This is episode 167 of The Stem Cell Podcast, from scientist to editor-in-chief with Dr. Sheila Chari. Hey everybody, this is Dalon and Arun. Welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Before we get to that, do you love The Stem Cell Podcast and have thoughts on how we could make it even better? Hard to believe, but it's possible. We would love to hear from you. From now until May 12th, take our online feedback survey and tell us what you, our listeners, think of us. Participants will be entered into a draw to win a stem cell podcast branded Goldie Wireless Speaker. To participate, visit stemcellpodcast.com slash survey. Today, we have Dr. Sheila Chari the editor-in-chief at Cell Stem Cell on the podcast to talk about her experience as an editor of a major, major, I mean, we're talking about the major scientific journal that covers stem cells. We're going to talk about her experience, the career trajectory that led to that role. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news coming up. But first, whether you're in or out of the lab, Maintain research momentum and stay connected with your field by exploring stem cells virtual resources, including webinars, researcher profiles, virtual conferences, and more at www.stemcell.com digital resources. So let's get right into it. We're not really talking about COVID-19 too much on this episode since we've discussed that, you know, kind of ad nauseum in the previous episode, but we're going to talk more about the stem cell side of things. So we're going to focus on heart research in the beginning. That's the first paper I'm going to talk about. A calcineurin HOXB13 axis regulates growth mode of mammalian cardiomyocytes. This is coming from pretty well-known cardiac research lab, um, Hesham Sadex lab down there at UT Southwestern. There's a huge cardiac research unit down there at UT Southwestern spearheaded by Eric Olson, who's you know one of the, the grandfathers of basic cardiac biology. So what the SADEC lab was uh, hoping to do here is answer a question related to mammalian cardiomyocyte regeneration. Of course, this has been discussed ad nauseum. This has been discussed a lot, um, even on this podcast, right? We know that in the mammalian heart, there's not really a strong propensity to regenerate. And that's part of the reason that you have problems when it comes to heart failure. After heart failure, you're losing cardiomyocytes in your heart, and those cells are not able to regrow and regenerate themselves. Of course, that's in direct contrast to what's possible in a lot of other species like the, the newt, zebrafish, salamander, where you can cut off a portion of the heart and it's going to grow back through the regeneration and replication of existing cardiomyocytes, but not really the case for adult mammals. Adult mammals, though, uh, because the SADEC lab and other labs around the world have actually shown that in neonatal mammals and really early postnatally, uh, the mammalian heart does retain the capacity to regenerate its cardiomyocytes, but that ability is lost really, really early on during mammalian development. So around nine years ago or so, you know, uh, the SADEC lab discovered that mouse hearts can regenerate if they're damaged in the first few days of life. And it's uh, this regeneration is spurred by the division of cardiomyocytes, which of course are the contractile cells of the heart, right? But the capacity to regenerate is actually totally lost by a week after birth. 
So what they actually found in 2013 was that there's this protein called MIS-1, which is a pretty well-known regulator of cardiac development. It's a transcription factor. And they found that when you delete MIS-1, it can actually extend the window of cardiomyocyte division, and the effect is transient. Uh, the heart cells actually miss that genes are eventually going to slow down and stop replicating. So next, they wanted to figure out whether there are actually other mechanisms in place that can stop cardiomyocyte division, even when MIS-1 is absent. So they looked at other transcription factors that might track with MIS-1 in, in heart cells as they divide. Uh, and they found that one of the Hox genes, HoxB13, actually fits that bill pretty well. And uh, these Hox family members are known to function as chaperones to MIS-1 and other types of uh, other transcription factors, too, uh, that kind of ferried these transcription factors into the cell nucleus. So they were focusing in on this HoxB13 and found that when you actually delete HoxB13, the mice are behaving pretty similar to the, the MIS-1 deletion mouse mice. The window for heart regeneration and cell division is increased, but still within a few weeks, that window closes. But the key here is when they deleted both HoxB13 and MIS-1, the cardiomyocytes reverted back to an early stage in development, even in the adult, you know, in the adult mice. So they're able to decrease in size, rapidly divide, and get this, after inducing a heart attack, you know, a myocardial infarction, the mice had a pretty rapid improvement in uh, in contractility, so functional output. So there's evidence that MIS-1 and HoxB13 are working together to stop cardiomyocyte division in the days after birth. But uh, when you remove both of these proteins, both of these transcription factors, you can kind of extend that window for cardiomyocyte proliferation, even in the adult. And they saw that actually, uh, the one other note here was that apparently calcineurin is playing a role in this, as you know, another protein. So, you know, it's another data point in the story of cardiac regeneration. This has been a holy grail in cardiac regenerative medicine for a long time. And honestly, part of the reason I got into this whole field, right, it's, you know, cardiovascular disease is the, the leading cause of mortality in the developed world. And anything we can do to promote heart repair um, uh, after failure is definitely needed. Yeah, we need it. And uh, it's funny because that's the, the obvious when you start reading the abstract, at least in my case, I didn't go deep like you, but when you start reading it, you're like, okay, this is a story about heart repair. But by the end, you're like, wow, this is a deep mechanistic story about, you know, what goes on in terms of the intersection of the MIS-1 and the HOXB-13 and the calcineurin and the phosphorylation sites. It's deep. Um, but then, you know, by the end of it, I was kind of like, wait a second it's kind of conspicuous that they're not talking about this straightforward application that maybe like, I don't know, I don't know about CRISPR delivery. There's a lot of problems, but like knocking out these genes in the adult heart using a transient type CRISPR approach in the acute phase or in chronic, whatever, and then getting proliferation. Why, why wasn't that more prominent? Do you think at least in the abstract, is it, is it like a, is it like untenable, the idea? Is it like unilateral? Can you not reverse that proliferation? Is the hyperplasia ultimately going to cause the heart to like fail? What, what do you, what do you, where, where do you come in on that? Well, I think, and we actually talked about this with uh, Deepak Srivastava a few episodes ago too, 
when you talk about transcription factors, um, you know, developmental transcription factors, the the initial thought is that, oh, you know, they're doing what they're supposed to do early during development, but then later on during development, they kind of turn off. But there's an increasing amount of literature, especially in, in the heart, uh, that shows that these transcription factors are still important in the adult too, right? So if that's the case, then you wonder that, you know, if you're altering the expression of something like a MIS-1 or even a Hox gene, which, you know, is important early in development, would it have some sort of detrimental off-target effect in in the adult heart? Who knows? Mm-hmm. Maybe some more transient, like a morpholino or something like that. I mean, we'll see. The heart is so tough. Like you said, we need help on the heart. It's a major killer. Also, I mean, you said we weren't going to talk about COVID. There's a bit of a link here. Heart disease or cardiovascular disease uh, is a major risk factor for death in COVID. And another risk factor, diabetes. Uh, Drinking, another one. I got a story that relates to those other two I just mentioned. This is about anterior definitive endoderm, a nature biotech story. It's kind of a recipe, uh, but more like a tools meets recipe um, approach with some mechanism in there, a real magic mix uh, coming out of Hiko Likert Lab. Butchered his name. I'm sorry, doctor. Out of the Institute of Diabetes and Regeneration Research in Nuremberg, Germany. So, I mean, let's just take a step back here. You know, you'd think we know all there is to know in particular about pancreas differentiation and beta cell. You know, there have been protocols forever that have been really, really well developed uh, that are very precise, um, also for the liver. And so you'd think we've got it all figured out, but not quite. You know, physiologically, the liver and, and the pancreas uh, the progenitors that, that give rise to those organs and their, all their constituents. In vivo, they're thought to arrive, and embryogenesis thought to arise from a, a multipotent and anterior definitive endoderm population. Okay. But like where they arise, it's very complicated, as many things in gas relation early throughout, in fact, in, in during embryogenesis and the later stage in particular as well. You have this really complex molecular milieu. Okay. We always talk about it where all these different signals coming from different directions converge in these morphogen gradients. It's very, very complicated. And I think, you know, the idea that we can really accurately recapitulate those in vitro in a dish, it's a challenge. It's a major challenge. It may be beyond us. Um, But hey, there it is. That's how it goes uh, in vivo. And we try our best to recapitulate that. But whether or not we've been able to get those specified pancreatic liver progenitors in hematopoietic, uh, or uh, sorry, I'm fixed on hematopoietic room. There I go again. In uh, human pluripotent stem cell derived uh, endoderm, it's not really known. I mean, presumably the cells that we get at the end point come from these progenitors, but no one has really identified them uh, because they're transient, right? Uh, and moreover, you know, the upstream signals that dictate the progenitors um, uh, from the the PDX positive lineage in, in the pancreas, at least, remains also elusive, right? So that said, you're able to get 50% as much as 50% insulin producing beta-like cells uh, routinely generated in, in vitro in these differentiation recipes that are really complex stepwise recipes. Um, so yeah, like I said, we're, we've gotten, not we, me, but the field, we've gotten pretty good at it. But still, you always talk about this, Arun. A lot of these beta-like cells, and that's why they're called beta-like, they remain immature. And their static glucose-stimulated insulin secretion does not match that of 
the beta cells you see in adult islets, right? So they're not quite the real thing, seems, you know, they're a bit immature. And this is a problem just because like when we want to scale this up now, we're talking about putting these cells into people, the heterogeneity, both in like the undifferentiated uh, HSPC population in terms of the liability of undifferentiated cells that may you know, contribute to tumor genesis or some kind of off-target cell type that may muck up the works, but also within the differentiated cell population, there's heterogeneity where the signals can be opposed. So of course, it would be nice if we could enrich at every stage, but we don't really have uh, the great surface markers. You know, surface markers are a mainstay of all kinds of purification approaches, famously developed in the hematopoietic field and we've gotten really good at really fractionating and purifying all the different cell types in the hematopoietic tree because of that. But in a lot of these pancreatic diffs, the way we've gotten the insight is using these transcription-based reporters. So we don't really have a hold on the surface markers, okay? So that kind of brings us to this story. And I was particularly attuned to this because I'm a tools guy. I love flow and I, I appreciate the fact that to look at these cells and more and more, we're looking at these cells with single cell seq and appreciating the heterogeneity, we really got to go deep in the labeling. And we got to label these cells in a way that keeps them viable, right? So what the Likert lab here did is they, with the aim of really defining what these progenitors were in culture, they screened, uh, uh, <laughs> there I go again, human PSC derived <laughs> definitive endoderm with a, a panel of 330 monoclonal surface am antibodies. So this is intense, a lot of work. A lot of resources, very expensive, um, but they did it, and it was the payoff was big. They find that there's pancreatic and hepatic progenitors that can be isolated using two surface markers for the pancreatic CD177, and for the hepatic CD275, um, and they. Uh, when you take a starting population that's this seemingly homogeneous definitive endoderm, um, it's actually comprised of these two subpopulations. And what's really interesting from a mechanistic standpoint here is that they show this inverse activation with respect to wind signaling. So the CD177 pancreatic progenitors, they express and synthesize Cerberus, which is like a wind, canonical wind inhibitor. Um, and that, that specifies them towards pancreatic fate. And the liver progenitors, the 275 positive population, they receive a canonical wind activator and that specifies them towards liver fate. And it's just like everything in biology, you know, you got everything right in there made and ready made in the kit. And that's how you get these really important and interesting cells. And when you look at this method where they purify and enrich for these populations, they, the populations differentiate not only more homogeneously into pancreatic progenitors, but here's where it's really important. They're more functionally mature uh, and their glucose uh, responsivity is, is it's, it's more comparable um, uh, with the in vivo correlate. It's better than the ones you get from the unsorted cultures. So it looks like a real win here from a recipe standpoint. And also I, I guarantee you, it's only gonna make a lot of researchers work better. You know, this is something that's gonna augment uh, the field and, and raise, you know, this rising tide is gonna raise all boats at a time where we could really use uh, a bright spot. So you said you're a tools guy, like a, a methods guy, right? And we've talked about pancreatic differentiation a lot on this podcast, we've covered a lot of different papers that have focused on pancreatic differentiation and ways to improve it. I remember we talked about like 
actin polymerization, matrix stiffness, even the circadian clock, perhaps, to um, you can modulate those things to improve the differentiation of pancreatic beta cells. So, so what do you think is like the key, the magic bullet here? Do you think it's going to be one of these factors that's really going to be key in improving pancreatic beta cell differentiation? Or do you think we have to combine everything together? Or, you know, what, what do you think about that? Well, I'm not the one to weigh in on that. We're going to have to get an expert. But I'll, I, I will say that, of course, I think what the, what the common denominator for all these is the, the rationale. And that is that we need to move more, as you always say, Arun, that we need to move towards uh, a more, you know, physiological counterpart here. And that oftentimes that's a matter of maturing these cells. It's, it's the great potential of pluripotent stem cells and also perhaps um, the biggest crutch is that we, we need these cells to come from an embryological rudiment, right? And uh, it's a long time before an embryo becomes a, an organ. Uh, and and all the organs and all their complexity. So I think the common denominator to all these stories is that we're trying to move more towards physiology, physiology, whether that's 3D diff, whether that's, you know, trying to recapitulate the contractility, the timing. Um, but, you know, underlying all those things is being able to see uh, what we're looking for. And, and this is, I think, going to um, cast light on on what all these different approaches, how they affect the, the generation of these really, uh, these really clear uh, progenitors that are clearly defined and easy to quantify. Yeah, you know, biology is complicated. It's no secret, but perhaps there's multiple avenues towards the ultimate goal of mature beta cells. So definitely more work needs to be done. We're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about something that you know, a topic that doesn't get too much coverage here on this podcast. It's uh, prostate cancer and prostate cell regeneration. There was a pretty big paper in Science that just dropped uh, titled Regenerative, Regenerative Potential of Prostate Luminal Cells Revealed by a Single Cell Analysis. Um, last author is Charles Sawyers and one of the big pioneers in single cell biology, Abib Regev, is also one of the uh, corresponding authors of this paper. So we know that when, and this is probably something that I'll have to defer to you for a bit, right? Because you're over there in the re reproductive endocrinology department in Cornell. Um, you probably have a little bit more expertise when it comes to this area of research. But the whole idea is when it comes to prostate cancer and advanced prostate cancer, the standard treatment for, for men is androgen deprivation therapy, where you take away the testosterone and hormones that promote cell growth in the prostate. So you can remove them by either delivering drugs or even through surgery, which can cause the prostate gland to shrink by like 90%. But the cells that remain can still grow a tumor. And when they do, the tumor is often resistant to further hormone therapy. And it's more likely to metastasize too. So this is work that's coming out of MSK, Memorial, Memorial Sloan Kettering, and it's talking about how the prostate can regrow really rapidly. So the initial thought was that there maybe is like a stem cell population in prostate in the prostate. So that's important for regenerating the gland, but it turns out that might not actually be the case. So what these folks were able to do through a lot of single cell analysis was to identify that there are cells that persist after the hormone deprivation therapy that can actually contribute to the regeneration of the, the prostate gland. And most of these are luminal cells, which are forming the inside of, of the prostate. 
So not necessarily a stem cell population, but a, a differentiated population that can still regenerate. And we're talking about single cell RNA sequencing here, right? Where you can profile tons and tons of individual cells at once. We've talked about it a lot on this podcast, obviously, right? So they're collaborating with scientists from the Payer Lab and the uh, Sloan Kettering Institute. And of course, as I mentioned, Avi Regev's lab at the Broad Institute. They perform single cell RNA-seq on 14,000 cells in the mouse prostate gland. And they're able to map out the different cell types that are found in the normal mouse prostate. With the info, they actually next determined which cell types are remaining in the prostate after the mice receive this androgen deprivation therapy. Um, and it's uh, which cells are actually dividing to regrow the gland when androgen is restored. And they found that, as I mentioned, it's the luminal cells in the prostate that are dividing rather than a, just a subset of stem cells that are important for regenerating the gland. And what's more important, these luminal cells, which, you know, the normal function for them is to secrete fluids, actually had acquired abilities they don't usually have in a hormonally, hormonally intact animal. So they did, uh, in addition to all their mouse work, the Kind of stem cell aspect of this is they actually made organoids they made organoids from prostate tissue that was taken from men who had been treated for prostate cancer and they found that there's a similar pattern of luminal prostate cells that are acquiring the you know, attributes of stem cells but they're not exactly stem cells they're still differentiated populations so so it's we talked a little bit about this uh you know a couple episodes ago you know identity plasticity of different cell types, right? When it comes to cell types, differentiated, terminally differentiated cell types, perhaps reverting back to a more stem cell-like state. And it seems like it's you know, important and perhaps the case in multiple cell types across the body, like for example, in the prostate. It's something we don't talk a whole lot about um, when it comes to prostate cancer, but like I, I know from examples in my own life, in my own family, that uh, prostate cancer is really a killer. It's, um, it's devastating. It's, uh, it progresses really quickly. It can metastasize pretty easily. Um, so we definitely need a lot more work in this field. Yeah, this is a great uh, insight into that. And yeah, it starts with mouse. But as you said, I think the angle here that makes it special and high impact is that then they go into not only a human system, but into a patient system, an organoid system to try and lend further insight there. And and you started to say, I think I'm I'm constantly impressed by, it's just like in terms of just the way we are as a culture, as scientists, as, as thinkers, as humans, it's amazing how we get married to these ideas, you know, and and because they're good ideas. And one of those is the idea of a stem progenitor type cell. And once you get a really great idea, you know, a meme, so to speak, uh, in the original form, the Dawkins form, you get a, a a meme that catches fire and then it's hard to let go of it. Uh, and and it's one of those things that's kind of been eroding. You know, it started with Yamanaka, the idea that you could you could go back, the idea that you could enforce it. Um, and now I think it's becoming really clear that this is something that there's a physiological precedent for in the adult, that this idea of stem giving rise to the entire tree, it's not exactly the case for every organ. There's a lot of organs where it seems like there's this lateral differentiation and that these 
these derivatives, as they speak. Derivative has such a, a pejorative uh, connotation to it, but being derivative maybe has its power. These derivatives can renew, they can make up the organ, and they're the real life of the organ, it seems, in a lot of cases. So I, I like these stories. It's, I'm, I've made it into an underdog story. I don't know how we got there. <laughs> But it's the under, underdog story of these, you know, organ-specific derivatives getting their power back. Yeah, I mean, we talked about it, you know, for both of the stories that I covered here, right? In the heart, it's, you know, it's these cardiomyocytes that are reverting back to a more primitive state and enhancing their proliferation that way. So whether it's induced or it's naturally found in the adult, this idea of terminal differentiation is kind of, it's, it's falling by the wayside a little bit, right? And like you mentioned, the the whole Yamanaka story and the, the advent of iPSCs really threw a wrench in that whole idea that uh, terminally differentiated cells are terminally differentiated. It's not really the case anymore. Yeah, it's not the case. Um, so yeah, you, you were you were telling a bit of an organoid story at the end, and I'm following up with another organoid story that's highly relevant to cancer. Um, but this really has has it all in here. This is a story from Henner Farron, also from Germany. I'm in Germany today, but it's also a story in cell stem cell, which is going to be a nice segue to our guest. Um, by the way, Dr. Farron, they're at the G German Cancer Consortium in Heidelberg. Um, so as I said, yeah, this is about the colon. Uh, and, you know, when you talk about cancer generally, uh, but also in the colon, it's 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 these uh, alterations in the genome of the soma, the somatic cells, uh, and those genomic alterations, they kind of unleash the cell growth regulatory process. And that then transitions to the metastatic process. So there's the un unrestricted growth first, and then you get the spread, right? Uh, and, you know, talking about colorectal, it's the third most frequent. Um, prostate's also very, very, I don't know, prostate might be the most um, but colorectal, third most, bronze medal there, but still, still a big killer. Um, and in men and women, responsible for 8% of cancer-related deaths in the U.S. alone. So uh, over the years, because this has always been a problem, as long as we've been looking at it, we've found that there's these recurrent genetic lesions. Um, but there's also more or less frequent, but really... Um, relevant, you know, they may be pharmacologically targeted, actionable uh, drivers that are not as prevalent as the recurrent genetic lesions that all the drugs have been developed towards already, and they work to varying degrees. You know, some of them are really successful, but there's also these other smaller, lesser known, but actionable drivers, right? Um, and the problem, though, is that once you get them, once you see them, uh, they're there's been all this clonal selection and expansion, and then there's all this kind of heterogeneity itself. We've talked about it on the show that the cancers have cancers, and there, there's all kinds of different cancers in there. So when you target one, you treat it, it melts away, and then the other guy comes back in full bore, and that really um, is the end. Uh, so it's tough because we're only seeing that end many times, and we're not seeing the progression. Uh, and it'd be nice if we could uh, recapitulate that tumor progression. Um, so that was the intent of Dr. Farron and their group there. Uh, and this is, um, you know, as, a, as another aside here, uh, getting to the organoid idea, there have been a lot of these uh, drivers that have been uncovered in cell lines, right? Uh, but of course, as you know, I'm going to say, 
cell lines are kind of monotypic. Uh, they are, they're one representative of that heterogeneity. And now we're living in the world of organoids, not only organoids, but primary tumor organoids. So uh, that was the, the uh, tool that Dr. Farron's group used in order to look into this. And what they did was they used uh, transforming growth factor beta, TGF beta resistance as a, like to, as a framework to set up this assay. This is kind of a tool story in itself, but then they go next level. So these things are, uh, they usually succumb to TGF beta. You put TGF beta in the, in the cell culture and they go away. So you can do the screening and if they, they're conferred with TGF beta resistance, it's probably because you've had some of these tumor drivers that have allowed them to overcome. Um, so they took this uh, paradigm, they set it up in a tight way. Look at the paper. I'm not going to explain it. I only have so much time, people. Um, but they used this framework and then screened a pan-cancer tumor suppressor gene library in organoids, okay, in pre-malignant organoids that they generated by doing these, uh, these APCKRAS mutations. And in these pre-malignant organoids, they screened like over 2,000 or something of these of these uh, candidate, um, drivers. And they identified that TGF beta receptor two, which wasn't a crazy idea, TGF beta receptor, you know, it's TGF beta resistance. Uh, it was the most prevalent the most, uh, uh, frequent tumor suppressor gene. It was followed also though by known, but also previously un uncharacterized mediators of, uh, the cell growth of the cancer cell growth. Um, so it was a panoply of tools. I love tools, but also there was a lot of real clinical, clinically relevant stuff that we talk about also on the show. Of course, there's the organoid idea. They had some CRISPR cas not just CRISPR cas but this screening idea that I think is really taking hold as a, as a diagnostic tool, also a tool for discovery. And, uh, these organoids were patient specific, you know, and so we're looking at, at real, readouts of the, the genomic drivers of these more obscure cancers. So it's, a, I think, a, a really exciting story in a really common cancer that has therapeutic clinical relevance. Arun? Yeah, no, this is a great story. It's helping to answer a lot of questions about colon cancer and, you know, definitely a, a big time killer. I've got a philosophical kind of question for you. You're in a stage of your career that I aspire to be at one day. So I want to grow up to be like you. Huh. Um, so, <laughs> you know, take for that what you will, but, <laughs> but on the science side of things, I definitely want to grow up to be like you, Dale, for sure. <laughs> um, so when it comes to screens, all right, you've written like a lot of grants, obviously you're a PI when it comes to screens, like they did a CRISPR screen here, you know, they, uh, this is a really hot topic, CRISPR screens. There, there are a lot of screens that are coming out of the Broad Institute, for example. Um, when it comes to screening and putting that sort of thing in a grant application, isn't that kind of frowned upon? Like, you know, I'm applying for certain career development grants and everybody's like, oh, you can't talk about a screen or you can't even use like RNA-seq sometimes as a crutch because that's what it's seen as right it's a crutch you're you're kind of taking the easy way out as opposed to doing a really targeted mechanistic approach is that is that still the case when it comes to big boy grant applications oh i could tell you how many times i've heard too ambitious or you know lacking a substantive target i think that's what you're talking about here and um i agree with that and i think that that more i think if if i were a reviewer looking at a at 
a hundred grants, I'd be aggravated because it seems maybe lazy, you know, if you're going to say we're gonna, and then we're going to find something, you know, it seems like that's kind of the, the crutch that you, you're going to throw some tech at it. And then the answer is going to reveal itself because, you know, I mean, as you know, as naive as you may be, everyone, a young, <laughs> young puppy in science who happens to be probably already surpassing my present achievement level, uh, I would say that, you know that when you look at these data, it's, it's, you know, it doesn't jump right out at you. You know, even when you get these powerful bioinformatics approaches, it reveals something that may be so either irrelevant or obscure or, you know, it's, 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 I think a challenge. So I think the one exception to that is if you're a big lab, you know, I wouldn't be surprised when uh, Henner Farron writes his his next grant that he can say he's going to screen for whatever the hell he wants. And he can say, I'm going to do a bunch of a single cell seek on I don't even know what yet. I'm just going to do seek on fill in the blank. And they're probably going to say, Henner, go for it. I uh, got you. Yeah, it kind of, I guess, depends on the level you're at. So maybe one day I can aspire to that. Maybe one day I'll be in your shoes, Dale. Well, I'm not there yet, but it's going to be one day soon for you, Arun. Uh, I'm not surprised to hear that you arranged for this uh, next guest that we have on the show, because of course, that's who you roll with. You roll with the editor-in-chief at Cell Stem Cell at all. Uh, You're a force force to be reckoned with. But before we get to that, I got a message from Stem Cell. Looking to stay current with the latest research and news in the fields of immunology and cell biology, we'd like to remind our listeners to check out Stem Cell's science newsletters featuring the most recent top peer-reviewed research and review papers, as well as industry policy and science news. Stem Cell science newsletters provide a platform that allows researchers to stay up to date with their field while saving time. Subscribe for free at stemcellsciencenews.com. All right, folks. Today on the Stem Cell Podcast, it is our pleasure to have Dr. Sheila Chari, the Editor-in-Chief at Cell Stem Cell and Executive Editor at Cell Press. Dr. Chari received her PhD at Northwestern University studying microbiology and immunology, where she studied the transcriptional mechanisms controlling cell fate decisions, mostly in the context of T-cell development and lymphoma. After that, she did a postdoc at the University of Chicago, where she studied the epigenetic mechanisms of cell fate choice using somatic cell reprogramming to iPSCs as a model. As the editor-in-chief at Cell Stem Cell, Dr. Chari's responsibilities are knowing and publishing the top stem cell discoveries, driving journal publishing strategy, and managing a global editorial staff. So a lot on her plate. So Dr. Chari, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited about this opportunity to speak with your audience. Um, anytime that we get a chance to teach people about what we do behind the scenes at the journal is really great for us. We are super excited that you're here. And so let's dive right into it. You're the editor-in-chief of the biggest stem cell-specific journal out there, which is also a part of the greater cell press family. And the community, of course, of course holds stem cell, cell stem cell in really high regard. So we'd be remiss if we didn't discuss 
COVID-19 a little bit and how it's affecting not only the publication process, but the greater stem cell community. So talk a little bit about how Cell Stem Cell and the Cell Press family of journals are handling the current COVID-19 situation. So how do you keep the publication process moving smoothly and continue to provide this outlet for stem cell research and discussion? Mm -hmm. There are a lot of layers to this, and thanks for asking about it. It's been on our minds at Cell Press. Um, so the first thing that we're doing to help support scientific progress during this time is to make sure that we're taking all papers on COVID-19 through a rapid review and publication process. So that means that we have a bunch of reviewers who we know are very uh, are experts on this topic kind of lined up. And when interesting, uh, rigorous papers come through, we write to them and ask them to review these papers in an expedited fashion. Once we actually decide to move forward, we're working with our production colleagues to put these papers online as soon as possible on our COVID-19 hub. So um, if you go to cell.com, you can see all of the research across the cell family journals that are on this topic. And we put them out you know, as soon as they're ready um, in the early proofing stage before they go even onto the journal homepages themselves. Uh, behind the scenes, there's a lot that we need to think about uh, as the research community is adapting to this crisis. So as I'm sure you both are aware, a lot of labs around the world are closed to any research that isn't related to COVID-19. And so we've had to think to ourselves how we can adapt the peer review process to that. So what I've done at Cell Stem Cell, and I know a lot of my peers at other cell press journals have done this as well, is uh, to write to all of our reviewers and uh, remind them that uh, it's important to make requests for revisions that are really limited to asking for experiments that are needed to support the main conclusions of a paper. Anything beyond that, especially now, but really in general, is um, probably work for another manuscript. Otherwise, a paper can go on forever. So uh, we're communicating with our reviewers. We're also communicating with our authors. So uh, all the authors that have papers under revision at Cell Stem Cell, I've written to them and let them know that we're um, flexible about the revision timing. So if a paper really needs certain experiments to be published at Cell Stem Cell, because we're not going to uh, reduce our rigorous standards. And we'll give them more time to make those revisions. Um, the other thing we've told them is that if there are some requests that have been made that they were initially planning to do because they would improve the paper, but they don't now seem essential, um, to come talk to us so that we can work with them towards a more constructive revision plan. So those are two things that we're doing. And then at the back end of the process, um, kind of prompted by this, but I think that this is valuable for all papers, um, is that at Cell Stem Cell, we're introducing a section in the discussion called the limitations of the study. And so this just is more putting um, with a more clarity what the paper can and cannot do and what the limitations of a given approach are and um, what has been requested during the review process and maybe what authors couldn't um, manage to do given limitations in experimental approaches. So those are um, some of the things that we're doing to help support the progress of science right now. 
Yeah, I mean, it's unique, right? This is a really unique uh, context. And of course, we have to take that in, in mind. And who knows, maybe some of these uh, elements in review, like you just talked about that addition to the discussion, maybe that'll be like a, 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 a that'll hang, hang around after the crisis is over. But I mean, my question, I I'm, I'm just want to disclaim, I may seem like a little bit of a hater here. And sure, I'm a bit jealous of, of the investigators out there, like my friend co-host Arun, who were able to leverage their cat-like responsiveness, pivot their research to meet this, you know, dire, unmet need. But I'm still going to go through with the comment. I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry. Uh, it seems to me like a lot of the highest profile journals every day. I mean, the clinical New England Journal and the Lancet, as well as the highest profile journals in academic science. are really obviously focused on COVID. That's it's the only research anybody can do right now. But we all know that like the research that comes out in nature was submitted probably two years ago. So there's plenty in the pipeline that could be in press, but there's a lot of focus on COVID for obvious reason and stuff that's not really like a huge leap of innovation or insight but it's more like corroborative, like, you know, a lot of papers, we just did a couple on the special COVID episode in Nature Medicine that were like, you know, there's AC2 in the nasal epithelium. Like, yeah, we knew that, but we needed to show it. I'm not poo-pooing it. Like, this is important. This is not a critique of that science. It's, it's, it's an important thing that we need to, it's a benchmark, right? Question I have is really like how, or, or even if, you as the edit editorial staff can separate yourself from what is in this case a, a frenzy for no, new info. You know, we all want to know the answers to this. We all want to have these tidbits that we think, we feel, we intuit, but we need the hard science. Can you separate yourself and, you know, say, well, we need to stay in, in the, in, in the rhythm that we were in? Or do you just say, you know, all bets are off. This is a COVID thing. This is a catastrophe. We're going to do what we need to do. We're going to tell the people what they want to know. And uh, if it means that there's some low-hanging fruit out there that are, you know, first to report this or that, will get a major impact paper out of it. Like, so be it. It's, it's, can you tell us what, where, where do you fall there? Well, I don't have as much direct experience with that because we haven't, say, had a huge influx in these papers because it's really more immunology and virology. But um, we did have some experience with this during the Zika virus crisis. And to me, what, what we learned from that is that the understanding of what conceptual advance is and what a conceptual breakthrough is, is a variable and, and it's very context dependent. So in this case, like you said, there might be some low hanging fruit, but I think there is a really strong value to having this type of research that's extraordinarily important to public health um, be vetted through a rigorous review process. So um, I'm sure you've seen that there's a lot of uh, research that's been put onto preprint servers and there's a value to surfacing results um, quickly, but there's also a lot out there that hasn't been done as rigorously. And it, I think it's our responsibility as journals that have the resources to properly vet and review papers to, to take uh, something that's of such important public health interest um, through the review process mm. and publish them in a high profile journal to give them that stamp of approval and, and um, give readers and the public uh, confidence in those results. Mm. 
So this is the stem cell podcast, and you can bet that our listeners who are largely stem cell biologists are paying very, very close attention to what you have to say in this episode, in part perhaps to glean some insights into the inner workings at Cell Stem Cell. I'd imagine it's still a dream of most stem cell biologists to publish a paper in Cell Stem Cell, so I'll ask a broad question kind of on behalf of our dreaming scientists. What is Cell Stem Cell looking for in a great manuscript these days? It doesn't necessarily have to be a COVID-19-centric paper. There's certainly no algorithm for getting an, a paper accepted, but are there certain technologies or expertise or whatnot that the editors at the journal are really excited about right now? So what advice can you give to someone looking to publish a paper in Cell Stem Cell? Mm-hmm. Thanks. So thanks for that question. Um, you know, the papers at Cell Stem Cell, I think of them as falling into three main categories. And so what we're looking for first are exciting new insights into basic stem cell biology. So that could be uh, research that focuses on endogenous stem cells in the context of homeostasis uh, disease or injury repair, but it can also be insights into early human development and pluripotency. Um, The second category that really drives our interest are advances in technologies that are applied in stem cells. This has been a historically pretty important area for the journal. Um, If you think back to our early days, we published a lot in uh, advances in reprogramming efficiency, reprogramming technologies. More recently, we've published papers that are using single cell profiling techniques to better understand heterogeneity in human tissues. Um, And also uh, advances in genome editing and how that can be applied in stem cells for cell-based therapy or to better do disease modeling. Those are all areas of interest for us that fall more into a technology realm. And then the last area that has really been growing in the journal over recent years, because it's been the field has been driving towards this, is advances in their therapeutic applications. And so uh, probably in earlier days, a bigger focus was on using iPSCs towards disease modeling. And that's still a pretty important area for the journal. But more um, recently, we've expanded into papers that are uh, more clinically focused. And so we've launched a format of papers called the Clinical and Translational Report. And these can be really uh, focused on practical advances. Um, Many of them are high throughput screening type papers, but we've even more recently published early phase trials using cell therapies. So those are some of the areas that are of strongest interest to us. I'd also say that at the journal, we're, we're really excited about the field merging with other, other fields. So two, the two areas that we're really focused on and we've uh, organized conferences on these topics in recent years are uh, advances towards tissue engineering and building more complex organoid systems and um, the merging of gene therapy with cell-based therapies and what we can learn from for example, the immunotherapy uh, fields, um, the, that's another area that we're, we're really excited about. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I want to preface this question by saying that I've always admired how uh, cell press journals, with cell stem cell in particular, I feel that, I, and this is maybe just my opinion, but there's always room for fresh names that, you know, as much as you see a lot of familiar PIs who are always going to have their big papers, 
you see some fresh faces and sell stamps, I think, and sell press journals generally across the board, I think makes a lot of careers by having the editorial insight and depth to find just good science, you know, forget about all the political elements. But of course, you know, I've also heard stories and witnessed personally these, these PIs that are just juggernauts, right? You know, that they go to these crazy, insane measures. For example, I've heard of PIs, you know, figuring out where the editor who was reviewing their paper was at a, at a conference in their neighborhood and like booking, you know, you know, spontaneously going to the conference, buying their way and cornering the editor and yelling at them to get their paper reactivated. And, you know, I mean, it works, it seems. And a lot of these people I've witnessed, I've heard of, sometimes it works. Um, but I mean, I would be mortified. I would rather die than go to those lengths. I wouldn't be a PI if that's what it took. So you can have it. But I just wonder out of curiosity, like, is there ever a point where the personality and that kind of aggression, or maybe someone's too meek, maybe the reverse, you don't push it enough. But is there a point where like the personality of the scientist, because, you know, notoriously, famously, scientists have a lot of dynamic, I'll say, personalities. Is there a point where that personality affects the review process for better or worse? Well, we try to avoid that to the best <laughs> of our ability. And so we have pretty standard processes in place. And and your, to your point, I think that being too meek can be a problem. And that's because you should be the advocate for your paper. And also you should learn about what editorial processes are. So we have a, a very rigorous rebuttal process. So anytime someone disagrees with uh, the science, the scientific critique behind their paper and the reason for rejection, we'll hear them out. Whether or not they're a very famous scientist or it's their first paper submitted to us. And so my advice to your readers is to, when you get a decision, if you really feel that the editors or the reviewers missed something, that you should advocate for how you could address that point or how your paper already does, and we'll hear you out. But, um, you know, in contrast, we're, we're only going to listen once, and because it's unfair to everyone else that is trying to have their paper considered by us if we spend an inordinate amount of time on a single paper. So um, I would recommend waiting till you have data in hand if you feel like you can rebut a decision and then come to us with it and we'll and we'll we'll listen to your to your scientific argument. Um, being emotional is not usually a recipe for success <laughs> and just trying to argue your way without actual data to go on also is very rarely successful. So uh, does that answer your question? Yeah. Yes, yes, of course. I mean, it was a very full answer. I'm just still, I, I just, my mind is still boggled. I think that how passionate, and it's passion. So it's not, it's, these aren't bad people, but I'm always surprised at how um, sometimes we're socialized individuals that surrender that social contract when it comes to your science and your story. I feel like sometimes people get to very base element, but you know, I guess these are people that they feel like they're fighting for their lives. So it's not surprising. I just pity you to be honest, because I can just imagine you getting ambushed someplace by someone who you just, you know, it just sucks. It sucks 
to be a celebrity, I can imagine, but at least they're fawning over you. If you're an editor, you're like a, a, a bad guy celebrity almost. The people who come up to you, it's not often to hug you. Once they get the acceptance, they move on. But the people who you know want to fight for their lives, they're coming after you. So I pity you and I admire you and I want to say thank you, Sheila. <laughs> you know, I, I would say you would be surprised at the professionalism that uh, that most researchers in, bring to their interactions with us. I, I I would say like you know, I have very few instances of uh, people coming to me irate and acting inappropriately, and and I don't focus on them because by and large, um, people are very respectful of the review process, and and they come they treat us like people, at least in person. Um, I would say Twitter is another story. Hmm. A science fair can be, can be great, but, but it can also be dehumanizing. So you forget that, that it's a person on the other side, <laughs> not, not some robot. <laughs> um, but I, I've been very surprised and heartened by the way that people treat us editors. Uh, scientists are certainly passionate about their work. There's no doubt about that. And speaking of being your own best advocate for the work that you do. The publication landscape has kind of experienced a shift over the last few years, notably with the rise of preprint servers. We talked about this briefly, like preprint servers such as BioArchive, and I know CellPress also has its specific preprint server in Sneak Peek, right? So from an editor's perspective, how has the rise of the preprint server impacted the work that established peer-reviewed journals do? Do you find yourself paying close attention to certain preprint articles of interest even before they're submitted? And ultimately, do you think this is a phase or is the preprint and open science truly the future of scientific publication? Well, I'll answer your last question first. I think that uh, anything that promotes openness in science is it tends to be good and and makes people behave better and uh fosters collaboration and those are all good things so as you said we have our own preprint server at cell press because we realize that there are legitimate reasons why authors will want to surface their results at an earlier phase in the process and so when I think about what the value of preprints are, um, you know, it's to get uh, priority on on your findings, but also to get early feedback on on your results. And I think that's particularly useful with um, methods papers, where you can get actual feedback from the community. So, in general, I don't I don't think that. They are at odds with uh, the uh, peer-reviewed manuscript um, because I think that there's a lot of value that peer review adds to a, a paper. A paper um, will change so much over the course of, of the being vetted by experts, and um, I think uh, that there's room for both. Uh, do I pay attention to bioarchive? You know, I. In a perfect world, I think I would. I think it would be fantastic if if everyone, if I could read papers easily and recruit them that way. But um, we, being an editor, is a bit like uh, that episode of I Love Lucy where Lucy and Ethel are working on that conveyor belt in the factory where everything just keeps coming along. And, and if you take a stop, if you stop and look the other way, you're going to get overloaded. So I don't really have a lot of time to look at, at papers that are not already published or ones that come into us. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot 
I'm coming down the pipe for you guys, I'm sure. There's all, a lot coming down the pipe for all of us. It seems like there's expanding fora for science. Um, and it's not just, you know, these preprint open access. There's all these niche journals coming from even, you know, major publishers. I know most re more recently, uh, or most recently, I think Cell Press Journals has a Cell Reports Medicine, I've heard about, clinical cases in the vein of Cell Reports. Um, and, you know, way back when, before my time even, I feel like there were a defined number of outlets. And now there's so many. And in fact, I know, like me, a lot of people get just every morning you wake up and there's all these spam journals even that are like, submit your thing. And it's broken English and it's obviously some, you know, nonsense. But uh, even so, even in the legitimate sphere, there's a lot of these journals. And I ask myself whether the, the four have kind of expanded or have they splintered and maybe it's semantics. Um, but what's your take on this? I know you just kind of answered this, that there's no, that the preprints aren't at odds with the traditional but I guess the question is more along the lines of like, is there such a thing as peak science? Like, are we just going to keep adding niche, niche, niche journals ad infinitum? Or is there a point from at least the editorial publication perspective, at least, where we need to kind of scale back all these offerings? Well, science is done on so many different scales. So from my perspective, the various journals kind of meet scientists at where they're at. If every paper is in one of the top tier journals, there's a lot of work that goes into that. And it could be exclusionary to uh, groups that have less funds or that are want to publish quickly. Um, not that cell stem cell doesn't aim to publish quickly, but I do know that there's a lot that goes into a CSC paper. Um, so when I think about these new, more specialized journals, to me, it seems like it's meeting the needs of, of the authors. Um, and what we try to do by having all of them, or at least some of them within our portfolio, is to at least not um, have to start over with the review process and and use use the work that people have put in into a paper and and try to find the the right home for it in terms of you know how it meets with the advance that it offers and what that journal publishes. Does that answer yes. your question? Yes, absolutely. And I, I mean, that's what I was hoping to hear because I, you know, the fear is that the message gets diluted, but I think that maybe the answer there is that your, your story meets the, its match, right? That's like more laser focused in delivery to exactly the forum uh, that, that, you know, that, is is most desirous of that content. So yes, thank you for that. So shifting gears a little bit, let's talk more about you, the person, Dr. Chari. So most editors at scientific journals are accomplished card-carrying scientists who have decided to shift away from the lab bench and you're no exception, right? You've trained as a, as a stem cell biologist at Northwestern and University of Chicago and decided during your postdoc to actually make that shift to publishing. And I think these days, I think the reality for my generation of scientists is that the, the non-academic career path it's not really considered an alternate career path anymore, right? So what was it like for you to make that jump away from the lab bench? And what advice would you give to trainees hoping to make a similar transition? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think towards the end of my PhD, I knew that it wasn't really sure, I guess, uh, whether I wanted to have my own lab. 
So I kept my mind open, but I, I did a postdoc because I felt like it wasn't done with research and I really loved it. And, and I also wanted to open up new horizons and, and start over and attack a new question and a new problem and learn how to do that with the wealth of experience that you get from your PhD. So um, I'm really glad that I did that. And I felt like shifting gears was really useful for then making the transition to being an editor. Um, one of the things about being an editor that is both great but difficult is that you no longer you no longer are responsible for your own discovery. So you don't have that failure at the bench, but then you also don't have those wonderful aha moments. Um, and so you have to really shift your mindset from being focused on yourself and and what it excites you to, to more of a, a service mindset um, where you're thinking about how can I support the field? And, and so that's a, that's a big transition uh, that can be tough. And then more practically speaking, you're working at a desk job hmm. all of a sudden, instead of uh, getting to do experiments at the bench. Hmm. Um, uh, for me, it was really where I was already progressing because I was studying reprogramming mechanisms. And at the time that was such a hot, exciting area where new papers were coming out all the time. And that's what I found that really got me going every day, um, learning what was, what other people were doing and how people were building on each other's discoveries. So that's really the core of what an editorial job is. Um, and so if, if you're looking to prepare yourself for, um, that future career, I would encourage people to really, um, think outside their own research project, go to seminars and, uh, on topics have nothing to do with what you study because you can, you're not going to be an expert in everything. And so you have to be able to take new information, process it quickly, and then try to place it in a field. Um, the other thing I would say is, uh, it's a good idea to review papers and help, help your PI do that because that's kind of on the job experience. A lot of what I'm reading every day are review manuscripts and reviews. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I make no mistake, you know, listeners who are considering the shift, we read her CV as though she, you know, got her PhD, did a postdoc and then became the chief editor of cell stem cell. It wasn't exactly that easy. All right. You're not going to jump out of your postdoc and get the big job and it, it's a big job, but you had to earn it. Um, but you got it. Uh, and so working towards it from the inside and then you finally get that, is there like a mandate? Is there like a vision when you're aspiring to that job? You're like, when I get the job, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to change the way they review papers at CSC. Are you just like, you know, trying to put one foot in front of the other? And, and if, if there is a kind of mandate or a vision, like, is, is it a big thing? Is there some, is it the pressure on you to, cause this is kind of a tumultuous time, I think, for journals everywhere. We're trying to figure out how we can secure the revenue. And there's this just fundamental idea that taxpayer money should not be, you know, you shouldn't have to pay again for what you already paid for with taxpayer money. And that's fundamentally opposed to the whole business model. It's tough. Is that like on your plate? Is there all these challenges that like you have to navigate to the other side of this kind of rough seas of, of the journal process? Or are you just thinking about the next paper that's in review? 
Yeah, well, you know, it changes over time and through your career progression. So I'm fortunate to have actually occupied every different editorial role in Cell Stem Cells. So I started as reviews editor and there I was really more focused on just making sure our front section was great and that we were um, fostering communication amongst all of our stakeholders and focused, quite frankly, on, on the papers. And same when I when I position, uh, moved positions to being more of a scientific editor. But as your career progresses, obviously, you do think about, about business aspects um, related to the journal and how we can um, support innovation and publishing overall. So part of what you do as, as an editor-in-chief is talk about things like um, oh, transparency and openness promotion. So we signed on to the top guidelines a couple years ago and we had vigorous debate amongst our group about what we should what standards we should adhere to amongst our journals, what exceptions we should make, what kind of uh, data we need to have as mandatory in terms of depositing and sharing. Um, so it, it becomes more exciting because it's bigger than the papers. It, it becomes about how, how you can help improve science. Mm. I would say um, in terms of, you, you talked a little bit about career progression. And so I, I just thought I'd add this. I really thought that I was going to struggle moving from an academic environment, which is really freewheeling and, you know, being an anti-capitalist, I thought, Oh, how am I going to move to working in a corporation? Um, and I actually have found uh, what Cell Press does in terms of supporting editors through career progression to be great. There's far more um, uh, structure in, in terms of making sure that you're working with your manager on what your goals are. So if you really care about things like reproducibility in science, you can take on that kind of project as an editor. Mm. Um, if you really care about diversity, you, you can take projects that uh, promote that. So the, it, it, the structure that um, I have found has, has really helped me kind of vision my career and, and help me understand where I wanted to take it. Mm. So Sheila, speaking of diversity, all three of us on this interview are scientists coming from minority or immigrant backgrounds. So we exemplify the diversity that's found in stem cell biology. And I'm of the opinion that a diversity of backgrounds and voices is really important to the success of modern science. And we've talked about it a lot on the show. Stem cell biologists come from around the world. And this is a young field with a lot of youth represented too. And the new generation of stem cell biologists is as diverse as it gets. So as an editor, how do you make sure this diversity of voices that is so critical to the success and future of our field is reflected in the editorial process? And what more can we do as a community to ensure that our diverse range of voices continues to be heard from? That's a great question. Uh, we think about this all the time. Um, there are many ways in which we can bring more voices into the journal. Uh, first and foremost, uh, we try to do this with our front section. And so we meet a lot of, of early career researchers at conferences or through their mentors, and, and we try to um, give them opportunities to uh, get the stage by writing previews or uh, contributing other, other pieces. So, so that's how we start to build a connection with people. Um, then I would say the, the next way that's really important is we are constantly trying to expand our reviewer pool because our reviewers, you know, they're behind the scenes, but they, they make the journal. They contribute so much. And so we are always asking um, the people that we know to recommend um, new 
PIs to us that they think can make a strong contribution to the journal. And um, ha we have like a little database where we're, we're adding people. And so if people meet us at um, conferences, that's a, that's a really great way for um, younger investigators to really, to make themselves known to us. In fact, I think we met Arun at a conference at ISSCR mm -hmm. uh, at an experts lunch that I did that you signed up for, and and That's I right. really encourage I encourage um, folks to to do things like that. There are a lot of opportunities to meet uh, editors at conferences, make introductions, and and that's how you find your way into the journal. Um, I guess the last way that we try to do this is. Um, uh, through our advisory board. So uh, very recently, Sal Press made a commitment to Im improving diversity, um, gender diversity in particular, on our advisory boards. And so Cell Stem Cell, we have about a third of our advisory board are women. And um, I'm in the process of, of looking through that and making a commitment to, to get that to reflect the diversity in the field. I'm hoping to get to about 50%. Wow. You guys think of everything. It's so impressive, but I guess I'm not surprised. You're well pedigreed. Um, but enough about the science, or at least let's just take a step back from the science. Um, we want to ask you a few things just about you, because now we've learned that you actually are a human being. There's human beings on the editorial where they're nice. They have interests. So tell us, what's a, a non-science book that you're reading or you've read that is awesome and that you would listen uh, recommend to our listeners? Mm -hmm. I am a big fan of memoirs. And during this COVID-19 crisis, I've been thinking about the books that have really been uplifting for me. And so one that I would recommend is from Roger Ebert, the film critic. Uh, he's a Chicago guy. And towards the end of his life, he had thyroid cancer that actually took his voice, his jaw. Um, you know, you, a person could really get down from that, but he chose to write this beautiful book about his life and his experience and, and what he was doing at that time. And it, it was, it's just really heartening. Wow. How unexpected. Um, yeah. Memoir. I was thinking everyone talks about, cause they got nothing to do with the quarantine. They're shut in. They're like, I'm going to write a memoir. And I always have to laugh because that would be the most boring little I mean if it's a memoir of the, of the COVID because every single day is the same so keep your memoirs go read the Ebert one because honestly I wouldn't have expected that but I bet you cried a bunch in that because that was a horrible story and I remember actually changing my tune on him because he always seemed like such a, a critical um, he was such a tough critic uh, and he spoke in no you know uncertain terms but I do remember reading one of his reviews of a of a of a underrated on my view uh, movie that he was really sweet about. So I'm with you on that. I didn't even know he had that memoir. I'll have to check that out now that I'm shut in. Um, and finally, who, back to science, who is or who are your scientific hero or heroes? Yeah, uh, going back to the importance of diversity, my scientific hero is Nancy Hopkins. So obviously being a stem cell biologist, I, I care about lineage. And so she's my scientific grandma of sorts in that she was my PhD advisor's PhD advisor. Um, and, you know, she's done such interesting work in the fields of virology and molecular biology, but 
uh, I think just as importantly, as a woman who really was a pioneer in her day, she uh, has talked about really openly about her the experiences that she's had um, being a woman in science and some of the discrimination and difficulties she faced. And well before the Me Too era, she went out and spoke truth to power about um, some of her uh, experiences. And and I heard her give a talk at the University of Chicago where she was very forthright about some interactions with James Watson that were both kind of hilarious and horrifying. <laughs> and I really appreciated her just being so honest with all of us about that and still seeing how, how, what great work she did. Well, uh, maybe you're following her lead, a young woman in a, at a young journal in the lead. You're going to be an icon, certainly in your own right for a lot of young women, young, a lot of young men out there who are trying to make their way. So thanks for sharing your unique insight and experience with us, Sheila. It's been a real pleasure and we hope to have you back and I hope that you will accept my next paper. Could we just make a side deal? <laughs> thanks, Stefan. Thanks, Arun. It was really great to talk with you. All right, you guys, that brings us to the end of this, I think was a special show because we had a unique insight from a guest that we don't normally get. Not only is she a scientist, high achieving in a competitive lab, but she transitioned to now having probably the, the, her, her finger on the button. You know, she has insight that we'd all love to have and she shared a bit of, a bit of it with us today. So thank you, Dr. Chari. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thanks for joining us for this episode, guys. We'll be back in a couple weeks now on our regular schedule. 